Welcome to season four of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do more good. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Live from a cafe in central London, this is your 14th favourite social good show, the Do More Good Podcast. Always room for improvement, Jimbo. Here we are, James, episode number 57, the Do More Good Podcast. How are you doing? I'm all right, Kenneth. I'm all right. Not too bad. Getting used to lockdown. Life in the bus lane. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a little while, yeah. Feels a little bit like uh, like we've been furloughed from the podcast for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, we didn't put our claim into HMRC for that one though, did we? I thought you would. I thought you were doing that. I thought uh, uh, those hefty expenses bills that we rack up on artisan crisps. <laughs> yeah, I think as you say, I think it's, it's been a busy few weeks and, and kind of getting getting used to this this lockdown. But what, what have you been up to? Not a lot. Like, I catch up with I, I've got a mate who moved to Japan straight after university moved to Japan and we kept thinking he was coming back and, he, and, he, and he's, he's had a kid out there and he's got married and he's bought a house and he's, he's definitely not coming back now um, and I used to catch up with him about once a year he'd come back for a wedding or for Christmas or something and that once a year we would pretty much cover everything we've been up to for the whole year and for some reason now every Thursday night we get on a Zoom call and catch up with, with Japan and see what is first thing in the morning for him and his kids have just woken him up and it's just before bedtime for us. I've got nothing to tell him. I had nothing to tell him anyway. But now <laughs> I've got no stories. Just been at home, haven't done a lot. Yeah, so, it, yeah. it's tough, yeah. isn't it? And we were just saying before we started recording about kind of the, the Zoom quizzes hopefully are starting to wind up and come to an end now. I mean, I don't know how I've managed to get through lockdown with only taking part in two quizzes i mean that's got to be that's got to be some kind of record isn't it i think i think that is yeah you've got to at least get to a stage where the same questions are coming up and you can't remember them from the previous quiz but i see <laughs> yeah. you've, uh, you've been you've been buying things haven't you? i can i can see from your uh, your video we have here that you've got some fancy earphones in you're very on trend aren't you oh i've got some earphones in what else have i bought i've bought a puppy is that is that yeah. a purchase that so we We've yep. got a new addition to the family, which has been fun. Even though my wife made the decision completely without me, I was out for a run and I'm running back towards the house and my wife's standing outside, like waving her arms in the air. And I'm thinking, oh no, what's gone on here? And she's like, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was like, what's happened? And she's like, I bought a puppy. You've got to go and pick it up tomorrow. Okay, then. We had been <laughs> discussing it and it wasn't all bad and he's doing really well. And actually it's been a real... He's, he's a good looking, good looking dog. Yeah. Just yeah. like his, just like his dad. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And you also bought a boat. Well, not a boat, an inflatable kayak. But yeah, right. been been getting out on the on the river a little bit, so that's been fun. But yeah, I think it's been, you know, it's it's amazing, isn't it, how we're all getting kind of used to this, used to this this new world. But uh, you know, I mean, I guess both of us in our day jobs, it's also been been really tough. And I think you know, you continue to see that the impact this having. I, mean, I know I've had lots of conversations about redundancies and not myself but other people and I think it's just a real time when you know we all need to try and support each other as much as we can 
Yeah, we seem to have moved through the emergency appeals and now we're hitting a, a tough time for charities, aren't we? So yeah. let's see how that pans out. But yeah, the next few weeks will be key, won't yeah. it? Exactly. But look, let's let's not let's not labour on that too long. Let's get into our episode. Our guest is, is patiently waiting and we've got a good one for you this week. So our guest this week has worked in fundraising since leaving university and her roles have mainly been for smaller frontline charities where she's picked up the phone and met the service users as well as securing funding from trusts and major donors. During her early career, she worked with Beating Bowel Cancer, uh, Berkshire and South Bucks Women's Aid. And then in March 2016, she decided to use her 16 years of fundraising experience working with all types of organisations, starting a role managing actually the fundraising for the Rape and Sexual Abuse Support Centre in Guildford, who were awarded the Institute of Fundraising Small Charity of the Year in 2018. So she's an award winner which we like on the show. And as a fundraiser, she's been really good at taking rejection and being pragmatic and has encouraged learning and reflection amongst the teams that she's managed. That was was until her son, Harry, came along and life changed. 36 weeks into the pregnancy, a routine scam found a loss of brain components. So Harry was born with hydrocephalus, which is known as water on the brain. By the time he had reached his first birthday, he'd endured four brain surgeries, including the insertion of a permanent shunt. So, really challenging time. So, in our response, our guest launched Harry's Hydrocephalus Awareness Trust, known as Harry's Hat. And the aim of the charity is to make life better for children with hydrocephalus through awareness, research, and support. So, she's done an awful lot. And she does that all in her spare time. So, I'm not quite sure how she operates. So, we're really pleased to welcome Caroline Thwaites to the Do More Good podcast. Caroline, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, virtually having me, but it's nice to see you guys. Yeah, you too. And Caroline, we can't probably jump into this with, without asking the question of how, how long, how's lockdown doing in your household? Oh, it's divine. I have four children. I have one who's doing GCSEs all the way through to Harry, who's two. So... I, I, I've learnt the disasters of Zoom chats with small children. I think all my colleagues know far more about me now than they ever should know about me. But it, it's on a positive note, it's, it's been a great time. We've, we've spent so much time together as a family. We're all still here. We haven't murdered each other. So I think that's pretty good going, really. And, you know, we're, we're blessed, really. We, we, it was tricky in the, in the middle, certainly when all the hospitals were shutting down and obviously we have a child with quite a complex condition. So that was quite scary at, at one point. But, you know, we've got on with it. I've still, we've still continued to work. In my day job, which is for the Rape and Sexual Abuse Support Centre, we've actually seen the need grow. So actually it's been really, really full on time. We've been very, very busy. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, isn't it? So I think we were joking about uh, the challenges that that we've had through this period. But actually what I've noticed is, as you were saying, spending a lot more time with the family and, and being around and bike rides and heading off to the woods with the kids and stuff. For other families, this has been a real challenge. I think the key is we're not all in this together. From what I see in my day job, it's very different depending on your personal circumstance and, and where you're living and, and the experiences that, that you've got. 
for us as a family with a child with a really complex condition, it's scary enough. But, you know, I, I live in leafy-ish, sorry. But I can get out, we can go on our family walks and, and we, we've got a garden, which makes a huge difference. So it, it's not the same for everybody. And I, I yeah. think that's, it has been challenging for a lot of people. And, and you're, you're learning your GCSEs all over again, um, oh, which yeah. is a massive challenge. Kenneth and I are struggling our way through years one, two and three. And, and yeah, you're doing the, the big stuff. Well, I stupidly decided my oldest child, um, school and him aren't probably their best friends. So given what I've done in the sector for a long time, he's doing citizenship as a GCSE. So I decided that I would do my citizenship GCSE with him because it seemed like a really good kind of insta-mum way of trying to help him. It's actually really hard. (laughs) And his teacher has taken to marking my papers and sending it back with constructive comments on how I could do better. That's brilliant. I love the phrase insta-mum. I have this lovely image. (laughs) Well, actually, Caroline, I guess that kind of leads on to, to, to the first question. We like to kind of jump in a bit and rewind a few years and kind of understand people's reasoning or, or, or how they managed to, to fall sometimes into the sector. What was, what was your story and, and how did you get into kind of fundraising in the third sector in the first place? Do you want the honest answer? Yeah. yeah. The honest answer was I left university with a reasonable degree, but one that you get when you've had too much of a good time and haven't worked that hard and went to work or sort of put myself on a charity who I thought would be very grateful for my wonderful skills and that I'd do that for a little bit until I found a very well-paid job I never found a well-paid job and they trained me and they taught me a lot and eventually they paid me so my role I think it was project development officer back then was created for me but not without making some gigantous mistakes to start with. I think I went in as a typical, having finished university, I thought I, the world owed me a, a living. I broke the Queen Mum's pot within about a week of being in the job and very quickly learnt that I wasn't probably as good as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> so was it at uni that you, you thought about charities or had you been aware of them before? Was it when you left? You, we have a few guests who've previously been on that said, you know, it was whilst I was at uni that was part of the student rag or something that I first became aware of charity. I did a, a ridiculous degree called PR and community studies, which was relatively easy to get into when I did it. And then the points went up afterwards. So it's quite, quite <laughs> cute. And we did have a few people from charities come and talk to us. They tended to be PR people working in charities. So a lot of my colleagues uh, at uni went off and did very good, very high ranking PR jobs. And I I worked for an organisation called the Plymouth Guild of Voluntary Action. And when I was there, I I got to do the frontline work. So they had a women's refuge there and a hearing and sight centre and a disability action centre. And I really got to learn like what the value of my work, that actually I could do something and that had a direct tangible impact on the people we were there. And it kind of, it, I kind of got the bug, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I guess so that, I that... fell into it because I don't think anyone else would have taken me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what, so it sounds like you say so you you kind of saw the impact that actually your work in the in the sector could have pretty quickly. I, I yeah. I'm guessing, and then uh, and then at that point you thought, well, I'll make a commitment to it and start kind of exploring it. Or did that come a little bit further down the line? They were lovely, and they invested in me. I guess they did what I think all good managers do and they gave me a chance to make some mistakes but don't make them again 
they also dealt with the arrogance of coming straight out of college thinking I could rule the world and quickly realised I probably couldn't. And I learned loads really, really quickly. But I think I've come from a sort of nice background and and I've been relatively lucky. And it was was quite humbling to work with some people and work out the struggles and things that they were, were dealing with. And to see firsthand what my work then was able to achieve because it was quite a small organisation at that time. It seems to be a bit of a theme through your career that you, you prefer the smaller organisation where you can actually speak to, to the beneficiaries of your work and see that in action. Yeah, I think I, I, I quite like to see the direct, sort of the, the tangible outcome. And I've always been a bit of a doer, which probably means jack of all trade and master of none, really. But it, it means that I'm seeing the people on a day-to-day basis. So you you can really learn the need and you can speak quite passionately. You know, I, I've worked in um, domestic violence charities for, for a long time, uh, seven years I worked for them. And, you know, you, you can't help but, but be moved by the people that you come into contact with and humbled by them. And you learn a lot from them. I think that makes you quite honest and quite humble and quite passionate when you speak to people. It seems to be a theme, I guess, from, you know, we've done a few episodes of that and spoke to a few of this now and spoke to a few fundraisers over over those episodes. And, and that kind of that connection and that warmth, that benefit that you get as an individual from meeting a beneficiary and actually seeing the positive work. Yeah. I mean, it always comes out in every conversation. And then I guess as people move up and up the ladder further, you become further and further away from that. How, how did you deal with that in, in, in your career when you're working with charities, when you may be taking on more senior roles and you weren't at the coalface, so to speak? Did, did you find that I think even quite... though, Sorry, even though I've kind of run teams before, they've never, the charities have always been of a size where I still had the direct contact with beneficiaries and you're still expected to roll up your sleeves in the weekends and come and help out. And as my family grew, we would still go as a family and go and do things with the organisations I work with at the weekends. So I, I think it's, you're either that way or you're not really. I've always enjoyed it, but it's always made me very humble and very lucky for what, what I have when you see some people who are really, really struggling. And, and I've also realised that people, you shouldn't expect everyone always to be grateful. I think that was one of the lessons I learned as well actually some people have just it it's such a tough thing that they're going through whatever the cause is that sometimes you can work really hard and you know that they're, they're so um you sort of you, you can do a project or you can get a piece of funding and you expect everyone to be thrilled but actually they're working so hard or they've got such challenges that it doesn't always come like that so I think that's something I've learned as well and Kenneth touched on it in his intro and then and then you mentioned it as well with your example around failure and looking at failure and, and learning through failure. You very funnily said how that was your start in the, in the charity sector. I think we've all been there. I've had certainly had disasters, some of which people have found out about, some haven't yet. But has that always been an approach of yours as to not kind of brush that under the carpet and look at things? Um... I think I've learned the hard way that honesty is the best policy. <laughs> um, I try and instill that in my children just because, you know, I've made some great clangers. And I, I think that is kind of how I try and instill it with the teams I work with. Uh, I don't really mind if people make mistakes as, as long as I find out relatively quickly. 
there's been so many fundraising things that haven't gone to plan or I remember when I was with my sort of first job I can remember some awful journalist flirt I thought he was flirting he clearly wasn't he was trying to get more of the story we'd, we'd been given some funding from um, a house builder and and I I thought oh he's really nice and I told him way more than I probably should have done and I think you you kind of learn just as you as you go forward really so I've always I've always learned to be a bit more honest and a bit more open but I think that's because you work with small teams as well and things do go disastrously wrong so if you're not straight <laughs> then it just comes back to bite you doesn't it yeah no it does and, and, and you obviously as you say you went through a, f- a few different charities and then decided to make the move into kind of freelancing and and using that experience that you'd amassed to, to support lots of different charities and different roles. Mm. I might know the answer to this based on what we'll come on to talk about, about your son, but was, what was the decision-making at that point when you decided that freelancing was for you? A bit of it was family, to be honest, as well. And I got to a point where, you know, I, I had three children and I was a single parent, and actually trying to support the teams as much as teams need support was was quite tricky so I looked at the bit within fundraising that I was probably the best at which is grant making trusts and foundations I'm I'm working with corporates and I thought actually I've got enough experience I've made enough mistakes I know enough trust funds and things that I could probably give this a good go at uh, providing some support to smaller organizations that need that kind of strategy and and a bit of a sort of starting uh, block for people. Okay. And has that, has that continued on? Is that your your specialism that you, you, you still provide today? Yeah. I mean, yeah. my day job is now with RASAC, which is the Rape and Sexual Abuse Support uh, Centre. And I'm, I'm employed there and I work there as a funding fundraising manager. But alongside that, I will take on very small welfare charities as well. Usually in terms of capacity, because I don't have a lot, it tends to be ones that want the more, more of the kind of strategic set up where do we go you know that that sort of thing and I can do that relatively easily and it must be nice seeing that trophy from 2018 oh it was great I didn't think I was going to win so I went to the loop <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have been there in 2018 and remember that one I'm sure that oh. was maybe the year that I was up for a nomination was... but didn't win I didn't I know didn't. I was nominated so I I went with the charity and and we were up for a corporate award, I think. And after we didn't win the corporate award, I went off for a week. <laughs> My <laughs> colleague who was with me, it was apparently supposed to make sure I turned up. And yeah, yeah I, I genuinely had no idea. They started talking about some girl and I was like, oh, that sounds a bit familiar. And it wasn't <laughs> until my hideous, ugly mug came up. I was like, oh my God. And so what happened then? Was there a mad dash back from the toilet scattering? I, as I came out of the loo, they were talking about this girl. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> my colleague was like white face going, oh, God. Must have been good to get the recognition, though, especially I, I imagine like, well, I mean, we'll come on to talk about it in, the, in a little while. But, I, you know, small charities, it's, it's often difficult to get that type of cut through yeah. from a kind of PR and a recognition point of view. But that must have felt good for you and the team to get that recognition. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was quite nice. And I'd still like to know who nominated me, to be honest. But yeah, it, it, was, um, it was a nice thing to get. I wish I'd known I could have prepared some sort of intelligent looking speech instead of sort of standing there looking really cross. <laughs> <laughs> 
James does that most of the time anyway. So yeah, but I, that's mainly because I haven't won the award. Yeah. Well, true. Yeah. Or you, or you've had too many beers at the bar. Yeah. Either way, I end up angry in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and then we wanted we wanted to go in, Caroline. Obviously, your your story, as we mentioned during the intro, about your son and your experience and what that led to in terms of you know setting up a, a small charity. Would you mind just just talking through how you how you got to the decision about setting up a charity and, and what that was like? Yeah. Well, Harry's baby number four. So he's my partner's first baby. He's my fourth baby. So we were, you know, all very excited as a a sort of family unit. And because I'm an old lady, about 36 weeks, they decided to scan me. And it was just a kind of routine, random thing. And then they said that the baby had no brain component and we would, that was it, basically. I didn't realise that hospitals have all these funny back passages, which they led us so you don't upset other pregnant women. So they they led us there and sent us to a specialist hospital in London. And they quickly diagnosed that he had what's called an arachnoid cyst. And a quarter of that is what takes up his brain. And they weren't sure whether he would survive the birth. It was all, as you imagine, pretty, pretty, pretty awful. But Harry is is a determined little bugger, really. And he was born at 38 weeks with a team. I think there was 35, 40 people in the room. They had the recess team and all sorts. And he came out pink and screaming and they were like, oh, right. But very, very quickly after that, his brain, his head started to grow. We are just so lucky that we'd already had a scan because they knew then that they were looking for something. And then... When he was eight weeks and in the morning, I'd gone into work because Rassac was celebrating its 30th year. The Countess of Wessex was there and we'd had this big event. And then baby Harry came with me and he just took over the event. All our our planning for a year went up. So we had this, this, it was just a really strange thing in your head from in the morning we had this big event with the Countess of Wessex and, you know, it was very, very nice. And then in the afternoon, we went to the hospital for a scan. We handed the baby over. They came running out the scan, shouting, don't, don't feed the baby. He's going into surgery now. And his head had grown to such a point that he needed a shunt to be put in his brain to basically keep him alive. In his first year, the shunt blocked three times, got infected once. It was just a really, really tricky time. He, he's a blessing. We, we are so lucky. He's so naughty. And um, we are so <laughs> lucky he is here. Uh, I mean, he's a stunning little thing. And you would never know looking at him. He looks like the Bowden child. I don't know how we've managed to reduce such a beautiful child, but he, he really <laughs> does look like the Bowden baby. But, you know, under that sort of smock of beautiful blonde hair, He's got a life-threatening condition. Children with hydrocephalus are kept alive by a shunt, usually, and that drains the fluid from their body, and it blocks. And we didn't realise, but the shunts were partly invented by the author Roald Dahl back in the 60s, because his own child was run over. And basically, they designed a shunt on the back of of a fag packet. The technology has moved on a little bit, but... It hasn't really moved on since its inception in the the 60s. In about uh, 50% of cases, shunts will block within the first two years of being put in. Harry only took three months for his to block, but, you know, the odds aren't great. And that requires a lot more brain surgery. And obviously, 
they go you go to the local hospital and then you're blue lighted to the specialist hospital do you say i, I read on the, the blogs it happened four times in the first year two times it blocked one time it came completely dislodged and another time it got infected so that was was it four, four surgeries four, four brain surgeries yeah wow so each time it gets infected it needs brain surgery as well so so with all that going on and three other children and working as well i mean it's <laughs> yeah. it sounds like you like to keep your life really going. bizarrely busy yeah yeah or you don't have much choice <laughs> yeah in the matter but then you you obviously felt it was the time to, to start a charity and actually you noticed that something was missing you know this that there wasn't something there and that you could you could fill fill that gap how did that come about we wasn't quite we found out about the shunts and we realized that there was very limited research in the uk into hydrocephalus and then my third child decided to get tonsillitis so badly that his tonsils needed whipping out so I trundle along to the local hospital with him to have his tonsils whipped out. And this is going to sound bizarre, but I was actually thinking, oh, great, I get a night off. Well, you know, Harry doesn't, the hydrocephalus means he doesn't sleep. So I was thinking, well, you know, well, me and Lewis, my third, we'll, we'll get a, a night in the hospital and, you know, I get to put my feet up. And when we were there, a lovely nurse came up to me and she was like, oh, you're Harry's mum, because I don't have any identity as a human anymore. I'm just Harry's mum. She said, oh, I did your transfer. Now, what usually happens is when he gets poorly, he's taken to the local hospital and transferred with a team to the specialist hospital. Now, she really wanted to learn more about hydrocephalus. She's young, frighteningly beautiful. And so she had transferred with us quite late at night and because she wanted to learn more so she'd gone in the ambulance and of course the ambulance goes to the main hospital and then it goes off so she then had to find her own way back when she was telling me I, I didn't even remember her because it's obviously really traumatic when the children are really poorly but the fact that she wanted to learn so much really kind of resonated with me and you know why would you put yourself out and why would you do that over and above the time that your your shift had finished and then I found out that most nurses, if they want to do training or they want to even to do sort of peer-to-peer -peer networking, they tend to have to pay for a lot of that themselves, which to me is like, how are you going to share that learning? And how are you going to get children better like my child if you've got to fund it yourself or you've got to do or you're doing transfers late at night when your shift is finished just because you want that face-to-face? And then we realised sort of how badly the system is funded and, and how, how difficult it is. So we had some discussions with the neuro teams and they found out what I did as a job. <laughs> and then the rest is kind of history. Yeah. And in that time, so we, we set it up and we set up an Instagram account. You can see that even though I did a PR degree, you know, hashtags and things really aren't my bag because we set up Harry's hat. Now, if you look what that looks like, it's a hashtag. Only I would set up a charity called Harry Shat, but everybody knows it. <laughs> <laughs> through, through Harry Shat's Instagram account, we had lots of families getting in contact with us. They wanted to talk. Um, there is another brilliant charity called Shine, and that um, works with hydrocephalus and spina bifida. But we were finding quite a few families who were in our sort of boat where the, the child is really, really well most of the time, but can get really really quite poorly um they were coming forward through through the instagram account so we were like right okay so so we set it up as a registered charity in 2019 mm. with the aim of raising awareness funding research and providing support 
And you also write a, a brilliant blog about that as well, about your experiences. And I imagine for other families that are going through, that's quite nice to find relatable stories that someone who understands. Yes. And that's why, why we did it, really. When Harry was in hospital at, at one of the first times, I'd never met another mum whose child had hydrocephalus. In fact, like, to be perfectly honest, I couldn't spell it when we first had it. And this poor woman turned up in the hospital and her child was going down for a shunt revision the same, the same as Harry. And I found out, I realised that that's what was wrong with her child. So I basically, everywhere this poor woman was, I was there, like some sort of mad woman standing behind her. She was there making a tea and there I was. But I was too tired and too exhausted to actually speak to her. I just stared at her. So she's probably really traumatised. <laughs> and I kind of wished then that I'd had other, you know, um, support workers are amazing. And, you know, I've spent most of my life funding support workers. But in that moment, I wanted to speak to another mum. And Matt, my partner, Harry's dad, wanted to speak to another dad. And my mum wanted to speak to another gran. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's that sort of thing. Um, my friends wanted to speak to other friends who had supported people. So, you know, there, there is nothing like hearing it from another parent uh, and that kind of honesty. And I sometimes worry that our blog is a little bit too honest. And we have someone on our board who's good at legal things, so they, she keeps checking that. I'm not <laughs> to but, you know, I, I think it helps. And we, we get people who guest blog for us, and we're always looking for more. Because, you know, we don't want it always just to be Harry hydrocephalus. This is about other children as well. Our aim is, um, is that children don't have to have shunts, or there is some alternative. It's a great story to hear about founding a charity and I think a lot of charities when you go back to that starting point they've got a, probably a similar kind of experience to you is someone somewhere yeah. had an experience and then decided that okay stars are aligning here maybe we can do something that can have a real positive impact but I'm interested in from your perspective you were also working within the sector and obviously you still continue to do this on the side and in your spare mm. time but I can imagine that being quite a challenge because this is such a personal cause for you. Obviously, you founded it, you live with it day in, day out, you see the community, but then you've also got to have your day job and, and make some money. How, does, how do you balance that? It's really challenging, if I'm honest. And I think that's something I think is quite important to recognise. So long term whether I'm the right person to actually lead the charity I'm not sure that I am and I say that because I you know we, we founded the charity one of the things I felt is I couldn't do nothing given what I do as a job and and given what I could really see was the need but I think it's difficult if we got to the point where we would be employing staff and you know we need some more people at the moment but we need some more money before we have some more people it's very difficult because for Harry's hat, I could work all day and all night and it's never enough. With my day job, I am really passionate, but I'm lucky I've never been a victim of rape or sexual abuse. So I can look at it, I can do the best that I can do and I can then leave that at the door. This is my child and it is much more difficult if I'm very honest. Also, with the charity, we find that there are children who they're really, really suffering. We're aware of children right as we speak now who are currently in hospital having shunt revisions and, you know, one in particular where it hasn't gone very well. And that's very difficult to detach from that. I think I'm, I'm always very keen that you, the right person does it and that you're reflective 
you're not putting undue pressure on people as well. And this is you... our personal crusade, if you like. And I, th- I think you have to be very careful about that and be very mindful of the power that you wield when you go into a room and start talking about it. It's very hard to somebody to say no to me as Harry's mum. Yes. You know, I want tenor off you for the charity. You're going to be a real git if you say no, you know, because I can put <laughs> my little boy's face. And you know. if I if I'm coming in and I'm talking about the organisation that I'm paid to work for, I can show the needs. I can demonstrate the outcome. But it's easier to say no to me. Yeah. And I think that's something you've got to be very careful about. James is running a bit late as usual, so it gives me a quick opportunity just to give you an update on where you can find more about us on the social channels. So we're on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. You can also visit us on the website at domoregood.uk. There you can find loads of episodes and information, and we're also launching our new newsletter soon, so you can hear all about our latest episodes and get some of the VIP content. Oh, here he is. Come on, James, where you been? I was just going to ask on that point because I think going back to kind of where we are today in terms of the pandemic and, and dealing with this and obviously that kind of social movement that we've, we've seen and we know that the, the country is going to be impacted this in every aspect. I mean, you know, your, your day job in um, domestic violence, of course, is, you know, more funding there. We're seeing charity fundraising generally and, and the deficits and the numbers that have come out in the last two days are just... 14 billion i think was it again the, yeah. the, the, the most recent update but i think what we've also seen out of this is that obviously people wanting to contribute to, to society and people wanting to help other people through your experience what, what advice would you give to anyone who maybe was listening to this and think and has had that moment that maybe you did where they think you know maybe i could start something that could, can help do it but do your research Make sure you have got a brilliant, I have got the most brilliant board of people and family and friends, but people with really, really good voluntary sector experience. I have a brilliant friend who has very good corporate experience. We have a really good, really diverse board of people with really, really good experience who are friends, family, colleagues, and but they're not yes people. I think it's it's surrounding I'm not a particularly talented or clever person I surround myself with people who are particularly talented and clever well, you, and you've really got a GCSE and citizenship what are you talking about I haven't got that yet <laughs> <laughs> if my son beats me that's it it's like, <laughs> but we have got them uh, really really clever people and people that can fill all those key skills that you need to run an organization we've we've got some people who are really good and that they will question us if someone feels a real calling to do something or they've got a real personal reason for doing so i think you need people around you that will pull you down as well and say yeah come on let's think this through properly and for me you know when we're looking at the charity i'd want to give the the money to like every child with hydrocephalus we come into contact with the board will say actually come on no this what we're here to do is is to fund the research is to raise awareness is to provide the support is this is this the right thing to do and they they will question me so it's the heart and the head and i think that's that that's really really important and that that must be difficult being so close to it that and, and you, you talked about explaining that to your kids as well as 
people have a choice you know they might not necessarily give to your charity they, they might have their own cause that they give to oh gosh you really have read the blog <laughs> yeah 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 but i thought it was brilliant about trying to explain that to to youngsters about the Did number you of read the, out there. yes there, there was um there's been a couple of horrendous incidences one where the charity was the chosen charity in waitrose where you put those little green tokens in and my third son, who is seven, bless him, saw some poor lady put the tokens in another charity. And he went running up to this poor woman. We were in Waitrose. I mean, it's, you can get more middle class. And he was saying, but that's my brother's cause. And he, he's got hydrocephalus. And the oh. woman looked like she was going to faint. It was awful. And I, I spent the whole time saying, I'm really sorry. You, you are totally within your right to choose any cause. But, and she turned out to be absolutely lovely. But from my child's point of view, he couldn't understand why anybody wouldn't choose yeah. what he sees as his brother's cause. And to us, we have to be very, very careful that it's not what identifies. That's not Harry. We're, we're there for all the children with the condition. And to our children, it's about educating them that everybody's allowed to have a difference, something that's really personal to them. Yeah. I think it, for my daughter, she stood up in her class and gave a talk about why they should choose Harry's hat. And the class chose another charity. And that was really, really difficult for her to deal with. And as a mum, part of me wanted to go marching up to school. Why could you do this? But actually, it's about choice. In her, in her class, there's families that have been touched by cancer. There's families that have been touched by all sorts of different things. And so that, you know, and that's how it works. But trying to teach them that and for them not to be disappointed or hurt, it, it's been a learning curve for everybody who's, who's closely associated with us. Sure, it has. Parents who I think have fallen out with the couple of people that didn't choose the charity. But, you know, I've worked in fundraising for years, so I'm used to rejection. For the people that have come along in the journey that haven't, it's suddenly really hard when it's it's so so personal. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Uh, Caroline, it'd be good to get uh, just discuss a couple of other areas. I mean, I know you've obviously had a lot of experience in the sector, and 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 as you've just touched on your experience, which has been a very close to home in terms of founding. Harry's hat in the charity but as we were talking kind of setting up bef before this you know you mentioned a couple of things that you were interested in in one and actually you've touched on it already about when you first got into the sector and working with a good manager who taught you considerable amount and I think one of the points that you made in, in one of the, the conversations we were having about the lack of opportunity to develop in a lot of small charities would actually lead to a lot of people moving on quickly and actually, I think you could even broaden that out to, to small, medium, sometimes large charities yeah. is that as a sector, we don't tend to nurture and develop as well as maybe the private sector does. Just talk a bit about your, some of your thoughts on, on that. I, I've, I've had some real genuine frustrations, to be honest, with people that I have trained up. And I, I'm really passionate about training people. That, that is one of my big, big things. But sometimes there just isn't anywhere within the organisation for them to go. You are a sort of often one woman, one man walking, talking department as such. And when the only step up is perhaps the CEO or the head of finance or something like that, people will go into, uh, into other places. And I think sometimes the pressures, especially in small charities, actually, when you are so wedded to the cause and you're, you are seeing the 
you know you see the beneficiaries on a day-to-day basis that sometimes i means that people take put their own training needs or their own desire to 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 move up through their career ladder on hold it's really frustrating that there isn't that opportunity sometimes within the sector you see a lot of people just you see the same names kind of moving round in a circle because they've done sort of three or four years there and then they're moving to the next one and they're moving to the next one I think also what I've said to a lot of people and I I don't know whether it always goes down particularly well but it's only from personal experience is when I've worked with organizations where the cause is particularly difficult or particularly challenging it's not always healthy to stay for such a long time. Sometimes I feel you often need to do a couple of two or three years front facing and then take a step back and then do front facing again. I, I think people do tend to do that as well. They almost, some of the things, I mean, some of the things I hear in my day job are so distressing that you, you have to do something with that as well. And I do think that is another point with a lot of the small welfare charities a lot of the direct workers get clinical supervision they get you know that additional support i think fundraisers often get forgotten about because they are listening to all the case studies they're often talking day you know in my job you still pick up the phone you still pick you know we're with small teams so you know i'm not too precious that i can't pick up the phone someone on the other end of the phone who who's a survivor of rape or sexual abuse that, that's quite tricky to deal with sometimes Yet fundraisers don't fit in necessarily into that immediately. They might need something. You, you hear those things, what, what do you do with it? Yeah, I think as a sector, we perhaps need to look after our fundraisers a little bit more. I think it was something that actually in, in a previous episode we spoke to, to Claire Warner about. I don't know if you've come across, across Claire and, and some of the great work she's doing about the well-being generally of fundraisers in the sector. And you know, she's, a, she's a consultant and, and yeah, got some, some great initiatives going but she certainly touched on that she touched on the fact that fundraisers we don't tend to offer any kind of professional support but as you say quite often you are having quite sensitive often emotional conversations with beneficiaries and 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 you're almost left to kind of oh but hit your numbers at the end of the month and yeah and 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 that's it so i guess i guess my question would be is there anything that you've come across in terms of solutions to what you're talking about, in terms of people moving on for charities, retaining talent? How, how can we get better as, at that as a, as a sector? I think people hold their positions quite, you know, you, you can get people that are in positions for a long, long time and they don't ma- potentially think about how, how that position perhaps could be broken up a little bit to give people other opportunities does the CEO, for example, need to do everything or can you break that role up a little bit to give people coming through the opportunity to do a few more things? I know within Harry's Hat, founder, CEO, administrator, whatever you want to call me, but actually people would come through, could take the bits of the marketing off, they can take all these other things and they can run with them and make them work. I think sometimes people are really so worried about their position and I think especially now and with COVID as well, pe- people are going to be so worried about investing in new roles that suddenly these roles are just the ones that are standing are going to suck everything up into one person's role where actually you could break them down a bit. And, and I think you can mix it up. It's not just about fundraising. In, 
in smaller organisations, you see frontline workers who actually really want to learn fundraising skills and marketing skills and comms skills. But you often have, you're a frontline worker, you're delivering it, so you will sit there and you, the fundraiser, must sit over there and you mustn't kind of come into... But actually, if you're a frontline worker and you're grant-funded, say, for two or three years, then let's give these people skills, especially now in case the roles you know can't continue because you can't get funding let's train them up in fundraising let's train them up in marketing and let's give them some holistic skills and then there's the thing talking about kind of staff and 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 as you train them up and then maybe they move on and uh, the frustrations around that I'm, i'm the one that's gonna have to ask this question because kenneth regular on the circuit i mean if you can find a conference where he's not talking tickets have already sold out i believe um but yet seeing the same faces kind of representing the bigger charities, talking about their charities and what brilliant work they do. And uh, I don't know, you, you send your stuff along and all they see are great stories about the big boys. Yeah. I've walked out of, ch- of things before because it just hasn't felt relevant. You know, um, was that when James was talking by any chance? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that's enough. Uh, I've had it. <laughs> It happens all the you time, Carol. Don't worry, there were so many people leaving, I didn't notice anyone. Yeah. It wasn't you. But it was somebody talking who had a massive marketing budget. Now, that's fine for the big charities, but when you're there, when they are offering these conferences, please be really honest about the people who are speaking. Let the small charities know. If all your speakers have got a budget of 60,000, that's not relevant to me because my marketing budget is zero and, I, and we have to make it up as we go along. And it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel tangible. I can't learn from that because that's so far away from what, you know, 20 years, 20 years time, maybe Harry's hat will have that. But at the moment, we have nothing. In my day job, we don't have a marketing budget. We just managed to get grant funding for a, a comms manager, but the comms manager isn't going to come with a with a budget at the moment because because we don't have that. Where she can learn from each other, I think the there does need to be a recognition that these great big conferences with these headline speakers, it's very very different from small charities that are trying to 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 sort of go it alone, and you you don't have the access to resources. You don't have a team. You are the team when the sink blocks you're the one that fixes that and I, I think it's it, it it can be really disheartening sometimes I know what you're saying Caroline and I think you know you certainly do see names from big charities and quite often very good presentations some very poor presentations and it's all usually they're brilliant but they're not always relevant and I think yes. that's the and, and I think that was the point that I, w- I was coming on to is that actually what what we've seen obviously is a rise in virtual conferences mm. during this time I mean James and I were lucky enough to, to feature in, in one. But then also because the, the, the barrier to entry about putting on a conference is probably reduced significantly, you're seeing a lot more specialist conferences, or at least that's in my experience, where you can actually go and, and you almost have an idea of who is this for and what where will I benefit? I mean, yeah. I know the fundraising everywhere guys who who we were we featured on a couple of months ago. I mean, they've got some great conference series coming up, which and are, they're brilliant. Yeah, which are specialist and, you know, really focused. So people know yeah. what they're going in to expect, what they're going to get out of it. Is this going to be relevant to me, the size of my organisation, the discipline? So 
you know, it'll be interesting to see whether we do revert back to that big annual conference in a big hall somewhere and, and, and that's it, or we, we continue with these smaller sessions. And I think that's a really good point. I think, I think one of the things that people forget as well is that my training budget is about £350 a year. And that includes the travel and stuff to get there. So a big conference in London, that's wiped out my training budget for pretty much the year <laughs> and also my use of time it, in terms of my day job I, I work part-time <laughs> most of us doing it feel that we work a bit longer you know if I take a day out there is no fundraiser second fundraiser that's a day that the organization isn't getting fundraising so we have to really justify that that's the best use of my time and then if I go along and it, it's all, all really large charities and they all seem to know each other really well, you, you just end up feeling a little bit like, well, this isn't relevant to my experience. There are always great presentations. There's always bits that you can pull out and you usually come back feeling really miserable because actually you'd love to be able to do these things. But no, I that, think was, some... that was James's session again. That happens every <laughs> that, time. That'd be it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think some smaller conferences, and certainly what I am seeing is that they, you know, the Institute and things are offering bursaries and that's really good if it's not coming out of my training budget then we can we can kind of take the risk to go and and one of the things i have seen is the sort of councils for voluntary service there's a really good one in surrey whose exact name escapes me but they put on an annual conference every year and it's it's like 25 pounds to go and they've had the charity commission came and and various different people and actually you you get to, to network with those people in in the area that you're working but also they have been able to pull in quite big names as well. And that's, that's really helpful. I've just got a question for you, James. What have you done on your own personal development in the last three months? I listened to a couple of old Do More Good podcasts. Does that count? <laughs> I've done, um, no, actually, that's not true. I've been, on a, I've been on a course, actually. I did a virtual course. For a couple did of you? Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it's, you know, we were all told, like, you know, we need to continue to develop and learning, but I, it'll be interesting to see actually what the impact of, of this time has had, because I, I, I think that seems to have been pushed to one side as we've all been. It's been bizarre because I'm not commuting and yeah. uh, I'm at home all the time. How have I got less time now to do anything than I did when I went to? It, it doesn't make any sense. I, no. I signed up for the FSI one. And I was like, when lockdown happened, I was going to know, you know, I was going to learn to cook, which, you know, I was going to learn Japanese. To cook, but, that failed <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I think I did like the first bit and then life took over and it's sitting there on my, I must do this pile. Yeah. But they're very good, to be fair. The FSI stuff is, bit, is, is really accessible as well. And from Harry's Hat perspective, because we're so small, we can access most of that for free, which is really good. So Caroline, I guess I guess you know we've we've held you on long enough. I'm sure you've got your with four kids. I'm sure there's some hungry mouths around your house at the moment. Uh, so we won't keep you for too much longer. But just as a kind of more of a summary to kind of the discussion that we've had. Obviously, you've had some great experience. You've the experience of founding the charity, the experience working as you do at the moment in domestic violence. You know your early career. Is there any advice that you would give to anyone who's maybe relatively earlier in their career in the sector? and how they can kind of continue to, to, to discover new areas, to continue to light that fire that they have for the sector. What advice would you give to them? Run, and then the <laughs> second bit. 
go and get a well-paid job. No, no. I think it is genuinely do something that you love. I genuinely think you can't fundraise for all things. Some people can. I really can't. I can only fundraise for causes I genuinely, genuinely believe in that I can stand up in front of people for. And I think it's just being true to yourself. If you're fundraising for something and it doesn't feel right, don't don't continue. Do something that you truly believe in and you can truly see the outcome for. Some good advice. James, should we, uh, should we hit Caroline with our questions for the end? I think she's ready for this. I think she's ready. I think yeah. so. Do you want to go for the first one? I'll go first. So, if you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, Ooh. what piece of advice would you give and why? Don't, take, don't worry so much. You know, we could never have foreseen that I'd be a mum with a child with a serious condition. You, not, I wouldn't have worried as much as I did about the stupid things. Yeah. And I would have invested in good wrinkle cream. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we like to kind of share a bit of knowledge. Can you tell us about one productivity tool or some skill or a life hack or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? I've learnt Canva. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I can... Well, well, one of our trustees has taught me Canva patiently, but I, I've, I've learnt that, you know, we're, we're eligible for that and we got it as a grant and now we can use that to make great images. Which is Kenneth, I know it's usually has a blank face like that, but he really has a blank face for this one. Could you just explain to him what, what Canva is? It's a piece of software, I think you would describe it as, that you can, charities can apply for to have a license and you can make really, really great images for social media and stuff with it. So I can look, we look far more professional than then well, yeah, I, I, I am but it, it's it's quite useful and if I can manage it then most people can manage it oh that sounds good I've just, I think I've just found the website I've never heard of that yeah. one so I'll look oh, it up oh goodness me what, whatever comes out of the two more good social channels <laughs> over the next couple of weeks to be fair if it, if it wasn't for our trustee I would never have known but she, she's a social media whiz <laughs> okay final question for you as a podcast is focused around people doing more good what is your favourite story or inspiring individual you have met recently who has done something good for others? Oh, there is the most lovely little boy. And he's, if you go on Twitter, he's Lenny's Tunes. He also has hydrocephalus. He has taught himself to play piano in lockdown. And he, he, he did a tune for my Harry today. Oh, he's raised, I think, £8,000 for his school. Amazing. I will send you the link. He's he's gorgeous. Yeah, please do. That's oh, good. Great stuff. So well, we, maybe we could use that as our, our outro music. I know um, Simon Scrivener was talking the other day how he likes to dance to our oh, wow. uh, intro and outro music, but maybe we'll replace it this week with Lenny's tune. Well, look, Caroline, thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. It's been great to hear about your journey and, and your experience and, and, and sharing all that insight. So thank you. If anyone wants to, to find you, are you, are you a social media fiend? Harry's Hat on Twitter, where, where would they find you? Harry's Hat is on Twitter. So it's at Harry's Hat 5. And Harry's underscore hat underscore charity on Instagram. And Harry's Hydrocapitalist Awareness Trust on Facebook. Brilliant. Okay. Any final thoughts, Caroline? Anything you want to say before the end? No, thank you for having me. It's been nice to chat to you guys. And, uh, 
brightened up look now. Yes, exactly. Well, look, we'll wrap it up there. James, any final thoughts? Um, not really. It's nice to finally meet an Insta mum. Yes. And, and, a bad um, Insta mum. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to, it's, it's about bedtime for my kids. So I am going to find a Roald Dahl book to read them a couple of times. Yes. Think of yeah. George's Marvellous Medicine. That one. We'll read them that one. Lovely stuff. How about you, Kenneth? I think I'm going to make a donation to Harry's Hat. So I guess I can do that on the website, Caroline, can I? You can. Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll do that from the Do More Good crew. And no, that was it. Great to speak to you. And uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. Take care, guys. Lovely to see you. Take care. Bye. So James just wrapped up another fantastic episode, if I don't say so myself. How did you find it? It's all right, wasn't it? (laughs) If anyone wants to kind of follow up and actually enjoy this thing, where can they find us? Well, we're on Twitter, Kenneth, at Do More Good Pod. Instagram, <laughs> at Do More Good Pod. Have we gone multi-channel and even gone to YouTube? We have, but you can find all those videos on the website, domoregood.uk. And if you want to contact us by email, please use contact at domoregood.uk. 